Drive Live. Ludmilla Malava is here with us on uh, what has become uh, generally a legal hour, I think. Ludmilla, nice to see you. Great to be here. So, look, let's very quickly talk about VAT. I know for the last few weeks you've been attending briefings, and while we don't have a law in place yet, we have some indications on what VAT will mean, how it will impact companies and people. So you're starting to get a feel of that. What the Ministry of Finance is trying to do is to encourage people to prepare. So, you know, the information that you are armed with is important. It gives us um, a kind of a roadmap, I suppose, as we uh, approach the law. It comes in 1st of January 2018. There isn't a great deal to report this week, but there is one thing that you mentioned off air just now, and this is registration of VAT for groups that you wanted to outline. Indeed, it's called the VAT group, and that applies to companies uh, that are related companies. Uh, they can, as long as there is um, common control or common management, and what those terms mean uh, remains to be seen, but as long as there's that common control, certain groups of companies can actually have one VAT number, and they will register them as a group of companies. So um, they will be, for intents and purposes, a VAT group. Uh, this is of uh, this is actually quite um, uh, significant importance for a lot of companies here um, who have multiple legal entities as part of their business. So for example, you could have an entity in, in Dubai and you could have one in Abu Dhabi and by virtue of companies law in the UAE you need to have a separate legal entity set up in every emirate so you can see how there will be a business that will have at least seven different legal entities in the UAE alone so uh, there have been a lot of questions from companies coming in terms of what they will need to do how the VAT law will apply to them because there will be a lot of internal sort of selling and moving of goods and services and um, they were not quite clear because if the VAT were to apply to them the same way as, a, as if they were separate legal entities, it could become quite burdensome. Uh, well, uh, at the last briefing by the Ministry of Finance, uh, there is an option uh, that has already been agreed on, and that is to introduce this VAT group, a VAT group, that would allow these companies that are under common control to register as one and have one VAT number. When you say common control, what do you mean by common control? Is that under, I mean, I know, I know you don't have the details on that, but is that under one license, one shareholding? Do we have any clarity? And it's a great question. It's a very loaded question as well. So it will not be one license by by very um, premise of this VAT group. Uh, this applies to companies that have multiple licenses, so they have multiple okay. legal and they're multiple legal entities. Common control is a fairly subjective term. Uh, the details of what exactly that will mean are yet to be seen. However, I, I had a very discussion with the presenter of the, of the Ministry of Finance on this very topic. And so it's interesting. So let me just give you a few examples because these are this, the, the practical and specific questions that arise. Uh, as we know, there are a lot of limited liability companies, or LLCs, that are set up outside of, um, outside of free zones that have a local partner. Mm. And um, so in their minds, for example, even though they have separate local partners in, uh, let's say, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, we'll use those two Emirates by way of example, in their minds, it's the same one, the same company. So it's the same business. And, and it's under the same, let's say, ownership in their minds uh, of the, let that one expat uh, partner who holds 49% of the shares in both companies. And I'm using this just as, a, as an example. So in their minds, they would like to consider those two companies as being considered uh, under common control because in, it's according to them and, and, and maybe according to, and this is the, the kicker, according to the side agreements that are entered between them and the local partners, 
it, effectively, those side agreements give them full control of the company. And so therefore, relying on these side agreements, they will be perceived or effectively, they are actually one, the same company, and they are under common control. So the VAT authority, the tax authority, will actually not look at the legalities or illegalities, for that matter, of these uh, side agreements, They because they're not the enforcement mechanism, uh, mechanism for, for, uh, for legal or illegal businesses. They're just there to collect the VAT. So they will accept uh, a declaration from a company, from a manager of the company, for example, that will say, yes, we are under common control. They will not necessarily look into the the supporting documents of what that means. They will actually accept the declaration at face value. I mean, that's basically the input we have received so far. Now, the caution, however, is that these side agreements actually fly in the face of the law because under the law, if you have an LLC, you have a 51-49% split between an Emirati partner and a, a foreign partner or an expat partner. So therefore, effectively, the company is not owned by an expatriate. So any side agreement that goes that does away with that structure, it will not be enforced in the, in the courts. So, and that was the comment that, um, that was um, shared by the speaker that you just need to be careful, even though VAT authority will not be policing these agreements or the sanctity of these uh, institutions or companies. The information will ultimately be shared amongst uh, government organizations and authorities and therefore you want to be careful about how you present and what you present to be one the same company um, because if, if those documents conflict with the, uh, with the overarching laws, they will be held invalid. So, it's, so it's very important to stick to the terms of that declaration whenever you're working with the tax office, to present that one grouping. It's very important to understand what, what the law allows and disallows, yeah. number one. Because in a declaration, you can put in whatever. And in fact, you can put in, yes, I own these two companies. Well, in terms of purposes, I funded that, I manage them, and they are my companies. But... On the, if you look at the legal documents that uh, support the existence of these two companies, under the laws of this country, they may not be allowed. Claiming that company as yours may not be allowed. So therefore, you just need to be careful. While the VAT authority will accept your declarations, ultimately, in the long run, these declarations may be challenged uh, on the basis that they contradict the law. Okay. So, do you want to do the disclaimer, or shall I do it? Go ahead. You're okay. so articulate. We don't have <laughs> That's the first time anybody's ever said that to me. I thank you for it. Um, we don't have the law yet. It is not in place yet. But these are uh, from seminars that Ludmilla attends at the Ministry of Finance. And that's what we're learning. The point is really to encourage people to gear up for the introduction of VAT. That's the point. Isn't Indeed. It? Also because, the, according to the last briefing, the mandatory deadline for all VAT taxable persons, as, the, as we will be called, mm. to, to register is um, the uh, last quarter of 2017, which is October 2017. So it's just really around the corner. And as of Q3, uh, the registration will be open for all, For all, I guess, optional registration will be open Okay, for whoever's Lud- ready. Right. Ludmilla Malava is here answering questions today. VAT is one of the uh, topics. If you do have a question on that, we'll approach, uh, let me see, it's Anthony's question in a second on VAT. But if you have questions of a legal nature, particularly property, because that's what this segment was all about, then text us, call us, 431010-4001 to get in touch. Ludmilla is here until 6. Anthony is asking, will VAT apply when purchasing an established home, which I guess means not uh, off the rack, off plan? Uh, sure. Uh, the operative word here is home. Uh, VAT will, all residential properties, which home off, obviously will be one, 
are subject to 0% VAT. So the term is not exempt, but rather subject to 0%. Uh, and so therefore, whether it's a brand new property or uh, an existing property, there will be a 0% rate. Why this is important to clarify, because originally there were a number of announcements made in the media that um, and that perhaps was kind of the original thinking that off-plan properties or the, the properties that would be entering the market the first time around including residential properties will be subject uh, to the 5% VAT as of the last briefing we attended with the Ministry of Finance uh, uh, VAT only applies to commercial properties so therefore for commercial properties it will be a 5% rate and this is irrespective of whether the property is entering the market for the first time or is uh, an existing property that's being resold. Okay, Anthony, there's the answer there. If you have a question about VAT, a question about property, a question of a legal nature, get in touch with this. We're also going to be talking about real estate brokers, the importance of closing enforcement court case files for a losing party, an issue that you've come across recently, uh, Ludmilla. The importance of closing bank accounts, finally. I know that's uh, your experience, uh, Emma Brain, who's here mm-hmm. uh, on Drive this week. And the requirements for legalized education degrees for managers of companies. If you want to qualify for a UAE residence visa, Ludmilla Yamalabu is here through six questions. Get in touch now. This is Drive Live. On Dubai Eye 103.8. It is the legal hour, understanding property as it was in a previous incarnation, but we are talking property questions today. If you have something, you'd like something explained, perhaps clarified, Ludmilla Yamalova is here. Emma Brain, you have a question. I do have uh, one in here that says, can the landlord send a notary public uh, two weeks after renewal requesting us to vacate the property at the end of the new lease as he wants to move in and then start arranging viewings to try and sell the property? I've questioned him on it and he said he will move in if he can't sell. But I guess the question is, he sent the notary uh, notary report public notice two weeks after this person has already renewed their rental contract. Should this not have been done beforehand so that you get the 12 months notice at the renewal and, and what happens with this? The way the notice works, it starts the clock ticking from the time you actually the, the tenant receives the notice and then it's one year from that uh, from that point in time. So it doesn't, it's not linked to the date uh, either the commencement or the end of term date uh, of the tenancy agreement but rather the, t- the date that the notice is being re- is received. Uh, so in that case, if it's two weeks after the renewal of the tenancy, then the notice is one year from that date. Right. Now, with regards to the uh, uh, the reason for eviction, it, it sounds like the landlord is has has two reasons. One is selling the property, and the other one, in the event he does not succeed, he will move in. So the importance in order for this notice to be to 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 withstand the challenge, the potential challenge in the future, the notice should mention both reasons, uh, because we have actually seen notices that. Were were challenged, successfully challenged, because let's say the landlord said, well, I want to sell the property and then ultimately didn't sell the property and then uh, moved in himself or or you know, just or did whatever else with, with the property. So in that case, uh, the tenant successfully argued that the, the reason for eviction was never, never, never met. So in this case, if I were advising the landlord, I'd say make sure to include both reasons. Now, just as a follow-up to that, uh, we often are approached with questions about, well, how do you you prove that somebody is intending to do something, especially if you're not, you have not sold the property by that date. So it's, it's, it's um, understandable why an 
investors might be hesitant to buy properties that are tenanted. Mm-hmm. They may want to buy for themselves or they may they may just not want to have the liability of the previous uh, previous landlord. So there's, it's a lot easier to sell property that's not tenanted. So therefore, you could see how the landlord may want to see the tenant if, uh, move out first and then uh, show the property or sell the property. So and often by the time you get that point, you, you don't necessarily have a buyer yet. So we've all we've had often um, questions arise on that basis and that is well as a tenant if the landlord has not sold the property can I continue to stay in the property well the court's uh, stance on this or the RDC stance on this if there is an, a properly served notice and there are no others there's no other dev- evidence to suggest that the notice was served for some um, illegitimate purpose then they will enforce it and then even if at that point in time the landlord has not yet sold the property but they may ask for proof uh, that the landlord actually has the intentions to sell it and the, in the past what we've seen is they've accepted proof such as uh, a registration or a contract signed with a real estate broker that's marketing the property and even copies of the listings of the property. Okay. It's important, isn't it, as well, Admira, and we, we kind of mention this periodically, that if you have a relationship with the landlord, uh, that's a handy thing to have. Very often we don't have relationships with the landlords. So you never sit with your landlord and, I don't know, have a cup of coffee, but th- it's one of the small things that you can do. It's that communication. Well, you know, it's it's small and it is a very big thing at the same time. It's, yeah. it's small in the sense that all, if having a phone number or an email address is a very small thing, but it, it's, it's, um, it can be huge in terms of just defining uh, your the scope of your relationship. So absolutely, yeah, we always advise uh, yeah, everyone to, if, if there is a solution to be negotiated amicably, that should always be the priority. And therefore, uh, if, if there's a way to reach out to the landlord directly and discuss these terms directly, I mean, that should always be priority. And on that note, it's extremely important that and we remind this, I've been reminding this to listeners and clients for many, many years, that whenever you enter any agreement, you need to make sure that you have all the documentation and all the details as 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 simple as it sounds, uh, related to the party with whom you ultimately enter into the agreement. And it's not the real estate agent, because the real estate agent is not the party to your agreement. They are a broker. They are the middleman. And so, but what we see over and over again is that a lot of people just rely on the communications from uh, from the real estate broker and accept all the documents from them and kind of take it at face value and never really have that access to the landlord directly and then you know things change brokers leave and um, and you know and they and just tenant circumstances change landlord circumstances change and often they don't know how to get in touch with one another so as a landlord uh, as a tenant you're paying to not the broker but to the landlord therefore you should absolutely have details of um, the landlord uh, and including obviously the copy of the copy of the title deed and copy of the passport and basic details such as phone number and email address Mm, and keep them uh, available at all times here's another question for you is it true that if I don't agree with a substantial and unreasonable I guess that's an assumption uh, of uh, an increase in rent for my commercial unit I can bring the rental checks to RERA or will RERA decide cases only for residential property no name but somebody's asking that Uh, good question there are multiple questions within one is it true that if you don't agree with substantial increase, you do not need to a commercial unit? Uh, you can bring the check to rear. Yes. In short, uh, so, uh, well, in fact, it's... it's it, it's slightly slightly more complicated. You can't just bring the re- a, ca- a check to rear and say, hey, please deal uh, with this case for me. You know, if you want them to actually act 
uh, and do something for you, then you need to file a case with RERA. Uh, and then by RERA here, it's the RDC, the Rental Dispute Committee. And when you file a case with RDC, it's like filing a court case. It's not like filing a court case. It is a court case. Right. It's just a court case before RDC. So they will not do anything on your behalf unless you file the case. However, they do do this sort of interim step whenever, for example, you're lease has um, is is up for renewal and you want to pay the landlord the same amount that was due under the previous term of the lease uh, which by law will apply to the following year and the landlord refuses to accept the check then you can deposit the check with RERA for a few weeks and that this is not really written anywhere this is just more by practice and um, they will keep uh, the check for a few weeks and then will you will try to reach out to the landlord to see if they can come and pick it up and ultimately will you can use that they, they will not hold on to these checks forever. They will call you at some point and ask you to pick them up. But at least you will have had the evidence that you've tried to pay. And uh, and you had an official document from RIR that the checks were there deposited with them. And that you've also tried to reach out to the landlord to get them to pick them up. And so the landlord refused. So you can use that as a pr- pretty powerful tool later on in the event the landlord files a case against you for, for, ex- for example, failing to pay rent. Mm, so you're not withholding payment, uh, payment. You're not refusing to pay. The point is you have documented proof that you have made taken the necessary steps. Indeed. Right. Um, Tim Ludmiller, most of us rent through real estate agents. We never have any contact with landlords. That's a reasonable point. But what Ludmiller was saying there was having the necessary documentation with whom you rent from. That's the point. And what I'm trying to say is lines of communication with whoever you deal with to try and keep them open. Yeah, well, indeed. But also, it's it's true, Tim's, or I guess whoever the, the name of the listener is, that most, most tenants here do not um, have real uh, direct contact with the landlords. But why? Why is that the case? I mean, that's not by law. It's truly by choice. You you are not obligated to uh, to deal with uh, with only the real estate agent. And in fact, to protect your own interests, you should have direct contact with the party with whom you're actually entering into relationships. So, whenever you're renting property, you are renting property from the landlord, and that landlord is the party to the agreement. So, therefore, it's necessary. And in any other jurisdiction, you will have contact details of that person directly. Here has just been the practice, but that's not necessarily something that you need to continue to follow. I was going to say, just from uh, from experiences from people that I know for dealing with real estate agents, they've uh, been refused the landlord's contact details by the real estate agents. And I'm wondering if this is because uh, maybe tenants and landlords could end up omitting the agents and just dealing with each other and uh, cutting out the middleman, as it were. I'm, I'm sure there are a number of reasons. I don't want to speculate or do be accusatory, but these reasons are not really legitimate reasons if, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, Ludmilla Yamalava is here. If you have a question for Ludmilla, it's to do with property. It can be a, a wider legal issue. Get in touch with us, 4001, via the free app or 4231010 to talk to Ludmilla directly on the radio. No matter your preferred communication, stay in touch with Drive Live, only on Dubai Eye. 103.8. We will continue with the legal hour in just a couple of minutes' time. Ludmilla Yamalava is here. Lots of questions to get through, which I have highlighted. If you have something on your mind to do with property or even a wider legal nature, contact us on 4001 via the free app or 4231010. You can talk to Ludmilla directly uh, on the wireless if you would like to. First of all, though, Richard Dean, uh, Emma has been out today. He is. He's out and about at the Seamless Conference and Exhibition. It's kicked off in Dubai. It's a huge event with 10,000 people gathering at the World Trade Center to look at the latest technology and trends in three areas of payments, e-commerce and retail. Richard's there and one of the more surprising things he's learned is that musicians are embracing the latest financial technology as they struggle to make a living. 
Live update with Richard Dean from Seamless 2017. The future of payments, e-commerce and retail technology. So one of the big talking points at Seamless 2017 has been blockchain. Now that's the technology that underpins Bitcoin. And here's the thing. Bitcoin sometimes gets a really bad press. It's seen as the currency for criminals and, and organized gangsters. And to an extent that may be true. But blockchain itself, the technology... That has no criminal links at all. It's just a really, really cool piece of technology, a really, really cool application. That was the message from one of the speakers, a guy called Alex Tapscott, who's written a book about it called Blockchain Revolution. And he says this, he says, you have to remember that blockchain isn't just about banks. It isn't just about currencies. It's also about the music industry. And he said some artists, like Imogen Heap, for example... They're not selling their music on iTunes anymore or they don't stream them on Spotify. They want to sell them direct to their listeners, to their fans on blockchain. And that's because, this is a startling statistic, back in the early 80s, if an artist sold a million copies of a song, they'd make about 45,000 US dollars. But today, if they stream a song a million times on something like Spotify or whatever, they get just $36. So the artists want to get their money back. They want their their business model back. And the way they're doing it is by using blockchain technology to cut out some of the middlemen and sell directly to fans. So that was one of the key takeaways from Seamless today. Another one, and this is interesting, is why these people are all coming to Dubai. We've had the, the global head of financial technology at Citibank. She was here today. We've also got a really interesting guy called Marcus Ruprecht. He's a fintech entrepreneur based in Germany, spends a lot of time in the United States, and he helps banks and big companies make their transactions more smooth. And I asked him, well, why come here to Dubai? What's the big deal about Dubai and technology? And this is what he had to say. You know, first of all, I really like Dubai. I am here for, for over 20 years traveling. It's a very nice bus that you're having here. It's, you know, sometimes almost comparable a little bit to the west coast of the United States. Um, there's a lot of innovation going on. But, you know, the major thing is that it's really a hub towards Asia and Africa. So as we are looking to expand our business in those regions, you know, it's the logical thing to do. That's Marcus Ruprecht. He's the founder and CEO of fintech company TraxPay, talking to me at Seamless 2017. Live update with Richard Dean from Seamless 2017. The future of payments, e-commerce and retail technology. Richard Dean has been out and about today. He's at Seamless. Seamless is on today and tomorrow at Dubai World Trade Center. Payments, e-commerce and retail uh, under the same roof. 10,000 people, uh, I think, attending over a couple of days, uh, according to Rich. But Millie Yamalava is here from Yamalava and Pleska Legal Consultants. We're talking legal matters, in particular property this afternoon. As is usually the case, there's always something that Ludmilla has learned about VAT. Uh, We were talking about VAT registration for groups earlier on. Ahmed had a text in about VAT. Uh, Emma Brain. He does. He says, as an SME, most of my procurement is done through cash and not checks. Is that going to be a headache when it comes to filing? Uh, should I look to change my procurement expenditure? Very good question. The operative um, term here is not so much the the form of payment, but rather doc- documentation accompanying the payment. So what's more important for you is to have 
receipts for all the payments um, that for your purchases and all the receipts or acknowledgement of payment for all the services or goods that you sell. Because ultimately, as a business, you will be able to offset your input VAT, and this is the VAT that you pay on all the goods as a business that you purchase for the use of your business, from your output VAT, which is the VAT that you'll be paying on the services or the goods that you sell as a business. So therefore, the key here is that for you to be able to have receipts of payments uh, on both ends so that you can offset one from another. So it's not so much the form of payment, but rather the, uh, uh, the, the, the documentation that accompanies those payments. Uh, but I know why Ahmed is asking the questions because often when payments are made in cash, they're not really accompanied by the necessary receipts. So the only thing you need to change here is more just the the, uh, the, the form of documentation. Also, one of the things, and it applies a little less to, uh, to LLCs and the free zones, is that this, all of this should come out in an audit because ultimately all uh, companies will be providing audit and so the government will have audit, company audits to rely on to cross-check. And some of this should come out even without the receipts uh, because when you, f- when you do the filing, it's not like you have to submit all the receipts to show that this is what I spent, this is what I, um, this is what I paid. It's rather you, f- you do the filing and if the government has any questions, they'll follow up with you and they'll ask you for copies of those receipts. But when you do the filing, that is really ba- based on your audit. Why I said there's a difference between LLCs and free zones is because over the years, free zones have been a lot more meticulous about actually encouraging companies to submit annual audits. LLCs actually do not have a requirement of annual audit, or at least it's not, it's not enforced. Uh, so therefore, for all LLCs companies, that is something that they will need to start um, incorporating in, in their accounting, and that is official audits, uh, which will ultimately, with the view that that audit will be relied on uh, by the government in connection with the VAT collection. Uh, Lubnilla Yamalova is here. Let's go to the phones. Ahmed is on the line. Question about getting a visa, I believe, Ahmed, for your parents. Uh, Lubnilla, is all yours. Ask away. Hi. Good Hello. to have you on. What's the, what's the question for Lubnilla, Ahmed? Yeah, I I had applied for my parents' uh, visa, visit visa in 2013, and it was issued to them. However, uh, they could not travel because my, my brother was unwell. However, later on, when I applied for the visa in 2014, uh, the visa was issued for my mother. However, the visa was not issued for my father. And when I uh, inquired, so they they asked me to apply again uh, around like after two three weeks. I applied around like a fourth week or so, and it was rejected again. Then after a month's time, I applied through. Uh, visa agent, I mean travel agent, and the visa was uh, rejected again. And the travel agent said there is some uh, security reason that's why they are rejecting the visa. So I need to understand how do I take it from there on. Uh, I mean here on that I want them to visit uh, uh, UAE, and what am I, what what should what should I do? How do I go about it? And this is a very good question, and unfortunately, there may not be a quick or easy or a solution at all. It is true the information you've received regarding the visa potentially being denied on security reasons, that's, that is a legitimate reason uh, why visas are being denied, and we have seen this happen quite often. Now, you may not necessarily know, the, actually, and most of the time what we, um, what we have learned is that you will not know the actual reason for the denial, and it is because the denial happens r- really by the... 
uh, but the security services and they are not really accessible for a visit by by us you know, the, the mere mortals if you will uh, so often you will actually not know the reason for why something is a visa is being denied however if you do not think that there should any be a legitimate reason for doing so, then continue just to be persistent. Continue to reapply because uh, things do change. Sometimes there could be a glitch in the system. Uh, what we have all seen as one of the other reasons, and this actually may be uh, something relevant for you, and that is if you applied for your father before, there might actually be a glitch in the system in terms of that previous visa was not canceled. Uh, and so therefore now he's not able to reply because there's that glitch in the system. So it's not a security reason, it's more of a glitch. But unfortunately, as I said before, it's so, it's so difficult to figure out the actual, the actual reason because you're not really, you don't have access to talking to the real people who are actually making those decisions. You may not know. But, but before, you, before you give up, I do recommend that you actually visit the Immigration Services Authority and bring all the documents, including perhaps the original visas where your father did receive a visa and see maybe if they can point you. If it's not a security reason, they may tell you that this was a glitch in the system and they may even tell you how to how to clear it we've had cases that kind of run the whole gamut including these glitches in the system that we've that basically was a matter of, of going and clearing the record because a previous visa was not properly cancelled or some documents were not submit, submitted we've also had cases that were just denied on security reason without really sort of hearing that that that, that phrase and um, clearly we've also had cases where uh, if you just keep resubmitting and resubmitting, all of a sudden, you know, the clearance comes through. So if you don't right. think there's any legitimate reason and it's not some sort of a glitch in the system, then just continuous uh, uh, trial may actually res- uh, end in a different result. Ahmed, let's hope uh, sorry, sorry, uh, Ahmed I, I, I can come over soon. One more, sorry, I would like to add one more uh, point in this. Okay. The, the thing is, he's been uh, traveling to U.S. since 2010. Uh, he has a 10 years uh, uh, visit visa and uh, now he has a green card however the uh, flip side i mean the uh, uh, the other point is that they've been using uh, either dubai or abu dhabi airport for transit and uh, i mean uh, due, due to, i mean as, as uh, transit duration is uh, between the two flights is not uh, long they they they're not they're not able to come out however i mean uh, they are transiting through uae so even then, I mean, I uh, I wanted to understand like how what is going wrong. I mean. It's, it's, an, it's, an, it's an interesting fault or wrinkle and again because these are questions of security uh, for in most cases you'll never actually really know the real reason however just uh, on the surface of it while well, you just described it seems that if they're able to to um, transit through the UAE so it may not be the reason may just be more of a glitch in the system or glitch in the in the in the, in the file uh, than right. anything more serious such as security reason so I just I just keep yeah. trying again Ahmed, appreciate you coming on. Uh, All the best. Hopefully, Ahmed will be here soon. Thank you. All right, then. That's Ahmed on the line there. You can call us if you'd like to, 431010, to put a question to Ludmilla if it's of a legal nature. We've got a lot to get through. Loads of texts in here. We're going to try and answer some of those next. We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai Eye 1038 FM. Just after 10 to 6, we've got lots of questions to get to. Ludmilla Yamalava is here. Let me uh, put this to you, Ludmilla. This was Kumar text again a little bit earlier on. We do talk about wills uh, and surrounding issues a lot on this program. There's a lot on the Dubai Eye website to do with wills, but let's just run this by you again. Kumar says, hi, I registered my will with Dubai Courts January 2014. Due to a change in circumstances, I intend to make a change uh, to the executor and trustee of the will. Do I need to register a new will? 
Can I just register an amendment? Also, any idea how much I would have to pay if I am able to make a change like this? Sure. In short, and in the interest of time, because we are running out of time, mm. I would recommend that since it's a Dubai Courts will, that you just do an amend uh, a new will, because for the purpose of the Dubai Courts, it's one and the same whether you do a new will or an amendment to the will. It'd be it'd be the same process for you to go and register the document, and it'd just be for clarity's sake. It'd be better to have one instrument than two instruments read uh, together. Uh, in terms of the pay, I'm not sure what the latest fees are. I think it's about 450 dirhams to 500 dirhams, but basically treated as a new will. Okay. Uh, we wanted to talk to you today about this. It was the importance, really, of closing a bank account finally. If you want to avoid continuous accrual of bank fees, that's something you wanted to bring up. Uh, and Brian texted in a good while ago. I'll be leaving Dubai later in the year. I have a mortgage, uh, Brian says, and uh, I rent out my property. I don't want to close my HSBC bank account. Can I keep my account open after I leave the country? That's what Brian's asking. So, as things stand right now, yes, the short answer. And uh, much of it depends on your own bank's policies. Uh, in the past, there used to be a time whenever you you, you stop uh, working or having any sort of relationship or interest in Dubai, then the banks would force you to close or would, force, uh, would close the accounts. It's not practiced as much anymore. And, in fact, banks do offer bank accounts for non-residents as well, uh, which are called call accounts, even for, for, new, uh, for new individuals. Uh, but more, uh, more frequently than not, if once you've had a bank account open, banks just tend to continue uh, those accounts, e- you know, even if you've already changed the status of your, your job status or your investment status. So you do not need to close your account unless the bank wants you to. Uh, now, because you have a mortgage and you're renting out a property, what you do want to do, and I, I would, I bet it's probably even in the terms of your mortgage agreement with, with HSBC, is that you would notify them if you do leave Dubai. So you want to notify them and you want to make it easy for them to be able to access you in the event they need to communicate with you one, once you've moved. Uh, most of the time these days, banks, uh, as long as they feel that there is um, that the the, the mortgage is continuing to be uh, paid and there is contact with the mortgage holder, then they, you know, they, they re- leave the relationship as is. But really, it's more, it's more, it comes down to individual banking policies and your relationship with your bank. Uh, but what is really important is that you communicate with them and, and provide them with all the necessary documents. And just to tack on a question that came in from Dave along those similar lines. He says, we plan to move back home next year. I want to keep and rent our property here in Dubai. If I let my residence visa expire, what problems can I encounter transacting with the property tenants and bank account? If you're out of the country, do you have to use an agent to deal with your property or can you still do it yourself remotely? You could do it yourself. You can also do it uh, through a power of attorney and that is, and that's uh, a power of attorney that's an official authority that you've granted to somebody other than, for example, a real estate agent um, to whom you're allowed to, um, uh, to represent you in connection, for example, with your properties. So you can do it that way. There's no requirement that you go through an agent. You can do it um, as, as an owner. Uh, there are practical issues with that because not being physically here will be difficult to show the property, will be difficult to actually sign the documents and so on and so forth. Uh, but those are not issues that you cannot um, tackle. It's, it's all just a matter of, of figuring out a structure and, and trusted people on the ground to do this. Now, as a separate comment, though, uh, it sounds like you are you're wanting to or you're expecting that your uh, residence visa uh, will expire and it will expire because if if you've stopped working that particular residence visa will expire but if you want to continue to maintain residence status in the UAE since you since you own property you can also apply for 
for lack of a better word, is an investment visa or property visa. And that is in Dubai. It is once again possible as of the last several years. In fact, if you own a property that's over a million dirhams, you, you can qualify to actually get your own investment visa, so, um, so to speak. Uh, so if you want to maintain your residence status, you don't even need to, um, you don't even need to can- cancel it just because you've lost your job or you're moving out. You just need to remember that if you do have residence um, uh, visa, you need to come back into the UAE twice a year. Uh, and and as long as you have property here, you may want to have bank account because if the property is being rented, you will be receiving rental checks. So it'll just be easier for you if you could continue to have a bank account here and whatever other facilities, such as a phone number and and um, and other facilities similar to that. So my recommendation is unless you absolutely do not need or don't want to come back into the UE twice a year, then you may want to consider keeping the residence visa on the back of the ownership of your property. Okay, and uh, another quick one here. Our flat is currently let out, but we're looking to move back in. Do we just let the tenants know within the three months time frame that their lease will not be renewed, or do we have to give them an eviction notice? As things stand right now in Dubai, it's um, the, the renewal of the lease is less relevant than actually the notice of eviction. So, irrespective of what um, what the lease states in terms of when the lease uh, when the term of the lease ends, uh, if you want to take possession or reta- repossess your property you need to submit uh, or uh, serve the tenant with a one-year notice and that has to be through the court however if um, you know you should always consider uh, I guess a business-like solution to your tenant so I would just communicate with them and just say listen we've got you have three months left of the contract and um, we, we want to move in the property would you consider for example taking a two month uh, as a kind of a penalty from us the landlord for for uh, for breaching the contract early and you know giving the property back to us so there's a business solution like that and I would say before unless uh, unless you can wait for a year from the time you serve that notice uh, that is something that I would do first Ludmilla Yamalova has been here from Yamalova and Pletka. As is always the case, we just don't have enough time to get to all the questions. We will keep the questions for next week. You can always text them in or call them in again, 423 or via the free app. For now, Ludmilla, always appreciate your time. Thank you. Always a pleasure.